Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 19, again for the third week in a row now. Last week we learned, you know what? Hey Moses, would you give me some water please? Thanks. Last week we learned about the necessity of fighting by faith. And we were reminded that Jesus Christ himself fought the good fight, ultimately testifying the good confession before Pontius Pilate. This week I want to open up the glorious description in the text that we have of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the reminder that we have that he's coming back. Thank you, Moses. The goal of telling us about God, like Paul does here in this chapter and other places in Timothy, and really throughout his letters, where you have him pause for a moment in the midst of his writing to a church or to Timothy or to Titus and to others. And he does this on a regular basis where he's just he's just overcome by the necessity of declaring who God is and just reminding us of it in the midst of everything else that he's saying. So he'll be He'll be talking about these deep theological topics and then he just bursts forth into this glorious description of what God has done or who God is. Or he'll be in the midst of reminding us of the work that is before us and then, again, he'll just, it it just, he can't hold it in anymore because what he's doing is he's thinking about who God is. And what that means for us. And he goes on these sometimes short, sometimes long, just just overwhelming uh, sort of, it's just this flow of words that all describe God, that all talk of his glory. And he doesn't, in these cases, go into explaining them in depth. He just goes from, from... Glory to glory, if you will, right? He piles up, he just piles up glory, he piles up words about who God is, about what he's done, all, all just in a row, tumbling out one after another, rolling over, it's meant to, it's meant to roll over us, to wash over us, because it's welling up within him and it's just and he, and he just can't hold it back. It just flows out onto the page. And then we're, we're reading it. And it's meant to do that same thing to us. It's just meant to roll over us and really to overwhelm us because God is overwhelming. So Paul doesn't go into great depth here. But if we think about the descriptors and the words that he uses to talk about God in this passage and about Jesus Christ and we think about the context of the book and the chapter, and I've already talked a little bit about this in previous weeks, those those things that he calls our attention to about God really make sense in the context. So what I want us to do is, even though he doesn't really expound on those in this case, he does elsewhere, but I want us to stop and just focus on who God is as Paul describes him to us. And that, that and remember that that goal, he, he, he's not just overwhelmed and therefore can't help but declare who God is to, to declare his glory to us, but he also has a goal in the book and he sees that telling us who God is is going to further his goal at this point. So what is his goal? Well, his goals are obvious. We'll see that he wants us to remember always that we are in God's presence. We are in God's presence. And then from that, to live 
if, if we know that God is here, God is with us, God is in us, that we must always fear him. In all that we do, we are to fear him. In all that we do, flowing from that fear, we are to obey him. And we are to put our trust in him. And then, flowing from having put our trust in him, we are to delight in him. None of these things can be separated from each other. So, our obedience is equally tied to our delighting in him and our loving in him, right? If you've ever read anything by John Piper, he, he, he will not let you go until he's, until he's driven that point home, right? That the delight that we have in God leads us into obedience. And that we must delight in him. But we also have here, as I've said, that we, we must fear him. And that that fear also cannot do anything but drive us to that same sort of obedience. That trusting, delighting obedience in his presence. So let's now stand as we read this text that includes such a glorious reminder of who God is and what he is to us. 1 Timothy 6, 9-19 through 19. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So remember, we've I've, in introducing this, we've already said that God, the goal that Paul has of describing God to us in this passage is that we would remember that we are in his presence, that we would fear him, that we would obey him, that we would put our trust in him, that we would delight in him. All of these things flow from knowing who God truly is if we have put our faith in him. For those who have not put their faith in him, the goal is the same, right? And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's writing to the churches, he's writing to Christians, and yet the moment that you hear this description of who God is, if you're not a Christian, it is meant to drive you to God, to drive you to faith in Jesus Christ. Right? You, you can't hear 
Paul describing with such glory and such joy and such intensity of purpose who God is without realizing that he loves God, that he delights to be doing the work that God has given him to do, that, that he wants everybody to be engaged in this same work, that he desires that they would put their faith in God, right? And so if you think about our church's mission, you look at the front of the bulletin, it says proclaiming Christ, advancing his kingdom, and we think about doing the work that he has placed before us to do as advancing his kingdom, right? If you think about bearing and raising children, as our church has been given the work of doing in many ways, right? Bearing and raising children in the faith advances his kingdom, doesn't it? And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Advancing his kingdom requires us to be doing our work by faith. It requires us to be doing it with with him building, not with just us building. Because if we build the house ourselves, we labor in vain. We're not building his kingdom, right? But we can't ever really be advancing his kingdom if we are not also, what? Proclaiming Christ. They go together. The moment you begin proclaiming Christ, you are declaring that he is the king. Right? You are declaring that people are to obey him. You are calling them to live under his reign. The moment you proclaim Christ, you're advancing his kingdom. The moment you proclaim Christ... You are insisting that his command applies to every single person that you're talking to, right? You are uh, an ambassador is a word that's often used, right? And ambassadors are sent to uh, give the will of a sovereign to those who are outside of the sovereign's rule. So we have ambassadors as the the United States, right? And so the sovereign is not, we don't have a king, and yet there is a sovereignty in every state, right? In every government, in every country, there is a sovereignty that God has granted, and then we have ambassadors, and and they go out, And the ambassadors say to other countries what they will and won't accept, right? And so there's been, in the last few days in the United States, there's been talk about uh, whether this journalist was murdered by Saudi Arabia, right? I don't know if you've seen this, but there's been talk of what should be done if it if it happened, and there's some evidence that it did happen. And, and of course, the answer is that something should be done if an American journalist has been murdered, right? And how would you go about doing that? Well, you, you have various ways, but one of the ways that you do it is by sending your ambassador. And your ambassador speaks and says, This will not be allowed. And there are consequences. Right? And so here we are. We're ambassadors. And God is the sovereign. Jesus is the king. But he's not just the king over us. And so the moment that we begin declaring Christ, we are the best type of imperialist. Now, imperialism was the idea of kingdom building throughout the the world, right? Empire building. And so the, the Romans built this empire and they expanded it and they expanded it and they expanded it. And then, of course, it all came crashing down, 
right? And Great Britain built this empire and it expanded and expanded and expanded and now they're like just that little island again, basically, right? But Christ's kingdom has no end. I want you to think about that. His kingdom goes forever and it expands forever and it, and it covers all of the earth. The whole world. And indeed, the whole world declares his glory. And so when we begin to proclaim Christ, what we're saying is, this is God's land. This is God's house. You, you, you think you own your house? You may own your house according to the laws of the state of Ohio, but probably you don't. Probably the bank owns your house. But neither of you own your house. God does. And so you declare Jesus Christ in your home, and you're like Joshua saying, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. We're saying this is... This is his place, and he will be honored. He will be glorified here. You can't can't separate proclaiming Christ from advancing his kingdom. Because to proclaim Christ is to advance his kingdom. To advance his kingdom, to live in obedience wherever you are. I don't care if you fly to Saudi Arabia or China, or you just go to work. You live in obedience to him, and what you're saying is, here I am, Right now, right where I am, I, living in obedience to him, I am advancing his kingdom. Whatever the work is that you're doing. And some of the work that we do is more obviously advancing his kingdom. And what I want you women to remember is that it's the, some of the most obvious ways of advancing his kingdom relate to children. Right? Because... What happens to the shakers who decide that actually we shouldn't have children? Do they advance God's kingdom? No, they don't. You understand why? And so so it's a beautiful, wonderful thing for us as a church to be given the work of training up children in the faith. Right? Right? What a glorious thing to say to our children. You are wholly devoted to the Lord. That's to declare the ownership of Jesus Christ over our home, our family, our life, our country, our work, everything that we do, right? And to do that is to advance his kingdom. And so this is, this is really Paul's goal. Remember what we saw last time. He says, fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then what does he do? He begins to he begins to just sing the praises and the glories of this God. And so what does he say? He says, the one who gives life to all things. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. So remember what I said. I said that his goal is to remind us that we are in his presence. This is obvious in this particular verse, right? He just says, he could have left off in the presence of God. He could have just said, you know, I charge you according to the God who created life. Right? We've got these commands from him and so forth. But he says, in his presence is no time or place 
where you're not in his presence. And so every person who has ever read this book, starting from Timothy, right? He receives this letter and he reads it. How many times do you think he read it? I'll bet you Timothy read this book a lot, don't you think? This letter. And then he, and then it's meant to be read to the church in Ephesus, so you know they read it. And then, you know, the Holy Spirit intended for it to be for all believers for all time. And so here we have it, and we're reading it. And how many times have we read this verse? Several. And every single time anybody reads this, and they read that, it says, I charge you in the presence of God. They read that, and they are in the presence of God. Every time anybody has ever read this, they have been in the presence of God. Now, we often forget that we're in the presence of God, right? And we think, well, of course, you know, you're reading it. So, of course, you're in God's word, you're in his presence. And I say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It goes beyond that. And I know you know this, but do you remember it? Because that's what he's saying. I charge you in the presence of God. To what? Verse 14. That you keep the commandment. It's not. I charge you now that you're reading this and you're in the presence of God, now that you're holy, you know, because you're reading the Bible, now God's present. No, it's you are always in the presence of God, no matter what you are doing. Therefore, always keep the command. Right? Because you are always in His presence. Whose presence? The God who created life. But here again, it's easy for us to make a mistake, to get confused and think something that it doesn't say, simply because it's the easier way to think about it. Now, the easier way to think about it is God created life, but that's not actually what it says. God didn't, back in Genesis, you know, create life, and then let it go. And so it goes and goes and goes and so on and so forth. No, actually it says that he gives life to all things. He is actively holding the world together. And you read in Colossians, I'm going to turn there for a second. You, you read these, the, the description of Jesus Christ in the book of Colossians. And the whole first chapter is such a, such a, a glorious description of who Jesus Christ is and and what he has done. Yeah, what verse is that? I didn't write it down because it just now occurred to me. Oh, it's verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Just think about the active nature of that. It's not something that happened once back in the past. All things hold together in him. He gives life. That's a present thing. He gives life 
to all things. That includes you and I, of course. But all things. Anything that has life, God is holding it together through Jesus Christ. The moment he stops holding the universe together, it flies apart. Life ceases to exist. Nothing continues apart from God's sustaining power and grace. This is the God that Paul is overcome by, overwhelmed by, in describing to us, to Timothy, saying, Obey. You're in the presence of God. He made life. He gives life. How could you not obey? And what else does he say about him? He goes on to say, he died for our sins. Now, he doesn't say it explicitly here, right? Where do I get that, though? Who testified, verse 13, the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Christ Jesus. You're in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And what does it mean for him to testify the good confession? This is one of those things where I just want us to remember how many things are the gospel, right? To just say, here Paul, he doesn't feel any need to expound what he means by that. He just says, Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And what is he talking about? Well, what happened before Pontius Pilate? He went to his death. He died for our sins. And not only did he die for our sins, but he goes on and glory of glories, he says, also, he is returning. He's coming back. Verse 14. How long are we supposed to keep the commandment without stain or reproach? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's coming back. And when is he coming back? Which he will bring about at the proper time. The proper time. Now, for some of us, we might be tempted to be discouraged by that, right? Because it's not right now. And we're really sick of having to obey. We're really sick of having to fight the good fight. We're really grown discouraged in our inability to keep up that fight. But here's the thing. It doesn't just say until the appearing. It says, which he will bring about at the proper time. Now, when you when you see God as he truly is, when you see God as Paul describes him here, There is no ability for us to doubt that the proper time is the proper time. You know what I'm saying? We think we have a better idea of what the proper time would be. The proper time would have been before I committed that sin. The proper time would be before I commit tomorrow's sin. The proper time would be really now. Ideally, soon. And we are told to pray, oh Lord, you know, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. But, knowing that he will return at the proper time, as declared 
by God. This glorious God that Paul is describing here. How can we doubt that the proper time is good? How can we doubt that the proper time is proper? That it'll be delightful. Well, one of the ways that we can doubt is when we realize what he is returning to do. Right? Not something, again, that's made real explicit in this text, but he's returning to judge. He's returning to judge the nations. He will return with a sword coming out of his mouth. He will return with a rod of iron to crush the nations. And is there ever a right time for that in our minds? Well, when we think of the right time for him to come, if we're only thinking about ourselves, and if we already have faith and we're like, this is really hard, then the right time is right now. But if we think about the returning to crush the nations with a rod of iron, then we think, well, maybe the right time is never. And so our two judgments are now or never. (laughs) Right? But God says, no, at the proper time. He's going to come. He will return at the proper time, and he will accomplish, by delaying, he will accomplish what he intends in your life, and in the lives of the nations. Because one of the things that we know about the delay of his return is what? It's from his patience so that many more will be called in. And so, don't be selfish and say, now. Come on, God, now. Don't you know what I'm going through? And he says, I'm being patient. Work with me here. Build my kingdom here now. And then he says, and also they have not filled up the cup of the wrath. And you say, oh no. No, never. Never. He says, no, at the proper time. This is good. It is right. It is necessary for the enemies of God to come face to face with who? God. In the person of Jesus Christ returning to judge the blessed the only sovereign, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. And that's where you see this this necessity of judgment, right? You get to the king of kings and the lord of lords and you just realize, whoa. Who is this king? the Lord, mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. He is the King of kings. He is the one that we are the ambassadors for. He's that sovereign. Right? And then you go back and you think, yeah, he is blessed, isn't he? He is blessed. He's not the cursed, harsh taskmaster that we're tempted often to think he is, right? The one who's given us more work than we can bear. The one who has delayed too long. The one who doesn't, isn't around and doesn't keep his eye on us. No. He is around. We're in his presence. He's giving us the grace of continued life right now. And he's blessed. 
the blessed Father from whom all blessings flow. Or as it says in verse 17, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Why is he blessed? Because he's love? Because he's God? Because he does richly bless us with all things to enjoy? Because he doesn't delay to make us miserable, but to purify us. Because he doesn't delay in order to make people suffer, but so that out of his patience, others can be added to his kingdom, saved from his wrath. Because he's not that harsh taskmaster that Satan tells us he is. But he's our blessed father. And we see that over and over again. You see it in James. The father of lights. All of the good gifts that we have come down from him. And the only sovereign if we're in God's presence and we are how can we keep thinking that we're sovereign that we have control over what the future holds or how can we assume that some earthly authority is sovereign God is the one in charge. Now, why is that? Why is that so glorious? Well, it's glorious because isn't it a joy, isn't it a delight to know that Trump is not all sovereign? Or whoever the president is when you're listening to this. You understand? Isn't it a delight to know that no man is the sovereign? Isn't it a delight to know that our hope does not rest in the Supreme Court either or in Congress or in any document no matter how much true and good is in the Constitution or in the laws that have been passed by your state, right? He is the only sovereign. And so that gives us hope. It gives us hope because we realize that no matter what the sovereign in our nation says, no matter what type of sovereignty they have, no matter what authority they wield, God is over them. And so this this man, this pastor, was arrested and held in Turkey for three years, just released this last week. Answer to prayers, right? A glorious answer to prayer. Who's the president over there? Erdogan, I think. That man is crazy. There's no telling what he'll do. There's no telling what his government will do, right? But is he sovereign? Who decided whether this pastor would be released or not? God did. God knew, and he didn't just know, he decided. And he didn't just decide, he said when. And then it happened. And that's why we pray. I mean, really, think about that. I want you to realize, that's why we pray. We pray because God is sovereign. He's the one in charge. 
He accomplishes his will. He is in charge. He is the king over the kings. And he is the Lord over the lords. And so who are we to obey? Well, we are ambassadors of the king of kings. And so no matter where you are, what authority structure you've been inserted into, if you're in a home where you're the wife and therefore you are a subordinate authority to your husband, right? He is, as Sarah said, your Lord. But you know who's Lord of Lords? God is. Now, that's a happy thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a happy, happy thing. It's a happy thing regardless of whether your husband is a man of God or an enemy of God. Because if he's a man of God, then you know that you're a part of, in your household, the kingdom of God. But if he's not, you know that you have a greater authority. And that no matter what that subordinate authority says to you, you answer for your actions to the Lord of that Lord. To the king of your kings. It's like sort of like being a spy. Think about that for a second. It's kind of like being a spy where, you know, you're working in such and such a government, but actually you work ultimately for this other sovereign, right? And you think, well, am I really supposed to be undercutting the authority of this institution? Nope. You're really supposed to be working for your family, for your country, for its benefit, because instead of it being like a a spy, a, a mole for another country where you're working against the one that you're working for, for the other one, instead, you're able to work for both at once. I want you to think of Daniel, right? Daniel worked for the king. Daniel worked for the king, and at that time, it was the king of kings. I mean, he was overall, he was the, they had the empire at that time. And was his goal to undercut, to destroy that kingdom? No, his goal was to build that kingdom. How? By serving God. Right? You see how it works together? You see how it's, it's a beautiful thing to be an ambassador for God wherever you are. And so here this guy is in Turkey, and the Turkish judge years ago said, you know, you're here to destroy and tear down our kingdom, to destroy and, and, and obliterate the authority that we have here. And he says, no. No, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to build up this country by declaring the gospel. And the guy says, no, that's to tear it down. And it doesn't matter what he thinks. He's the judge. He's in charge of whether this guy's going to get out or not, right? But it doesn't matter what he thinks because here this pastor is and he's there to serve God. You understand? He's there in service to the king of kings and he knows that as he serves the king of kings in enemy territory, he is proclaiming Christ and therefore advancing his kingdom. And yes, that does tear down the nations, but what does it do? It establishes them forever at the foot of the cross. It establishes life everlasting. It builds the kingdom in a way that nothing else ever can or will. Earthly blessings flow 
from our Heavenly Father. And so, yes, he is the King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the one that we are to obey. And by the way, he is also the only possessor of immortality. Now, why does this matter? Because we are walking towards death. Unless his son comes first, right? Our walking forward in this life is each and every day, one day closer to the end of our lives. And he possesses immortality. He not only created life, but he has immortality in himself. And he can give us immortality and life. And so this is our hope, right? It's not just that, hey, there's this super powerful God. He's the king. He's Lord of Lords. I guess we have to do what he says. No. He is king of kings and Lord of Lords. And also, there's immortality on offer here. He has it in himself. And what has he done? He's promised that those who seek him will find it. Find it where? Find it in the light. The light of Jesus Christ. You remember in John he says that he is the light. The light of the world. He came into the world. And what does it say about him here? That he dwells in unapproachable light. So no man can see him. Well, that, declare, that, that, that begins to remind us of his glory, right? You remember when, in the Old Testament, when the law was given, that the people couldn't stand to be anywhere near the mountain. And the light was hidden by dark clouds at that time, right? <clears throat> but even so, they couldn't stand to be near the mountain. And then when Moses comes down, from out of the presence of God, his face is shining with the glory of God and the people can't stand it. So he covers his face. That light is unapproachable. Even Moses is not allowed to see, not able to stand. He saw enough that he that his face... I mean, you guys, <laughs> you do realize how crazy some of the stuff that we just skip right over is. This is like stuff that you would see in cartoons, right? Brilliant, shining faces that are like brighter than the sun, you know, that need to have a veil put over them so that That's what happened to Moses. The people didn't like, they didn't want to see, because that's what being in the presence of God did to Moses. He shone. Because he'd been in the presence of the one who is dwelling in unapproachable light. Moses wanted to see him, and God said, you can't. What would have happened if Moses had seen him, not just been hidden in the cleft of the rock and seen his back? His face wouldn't have been shining. He would have been done for. And yet here Paul is, and what is Paul doing throughout this passage? He is giving us a view of God. He's wanting us to see in the mirror 
dimly, God. You understand? He wants us to see as brilliantly as he can possibly give to us to see with our eyes of faith who God is. And so that as we see who God is, what happens? We begin to shine like Moses. It flows out of us. It reflects off of us. It It is who we are. We become holy as Moses was holy from being in in the presence of God. A people set apart. You see God and you can't help but see his glory. You see God and you can't help but delight to be in his presence. You see God and and you see it as as Paul says, you know, even though he dwells in unapproachable light, even though you can't see him, I want you to see him. I want you to see who God is. I want you to recognize him. I want you to know him. And then I want you to delight in him. When you delight in him, you will obey him. When you fear him, you will obey him. When you put your trust in him, you will shine. And it will be like Paul, that you won't be able to contain the glorious praises that you have to say about God. Now, how many times have you thought, well, I should really give praise and glory to God, but it would be kind of embarrassing in this situation? I, for myself, have had that happen over and over again, right? I hope you've at least had that happen. You understand? At least had it so that you know, right now, I should be declaring the glory to God. You see a child born and... You don't declare the wonders of modern medicine. I mean, maybe. I mean, it is amazing, but God gives life to all things. Life comes from God. And so declare his praise. Declare his glory. The one who dwells in unapproachable light You, like Paul, should occasionally, at least, and it happens to him multiple times in this very book, right? Be overwhelmed and unable to do anything besides stopping in the middle of what you're doing and saying, God is great. He's glorious. He's good. He's holy. He's wise. He's true. He's coming back. What are you going to do? How are you going to live? He has immortality in himself. What is your hope in? That's where my hope is. Let's pray. 